What an exciting morning. We are so glad that you guys are here. Yeah, you can clap again. I know it's one of those things. It's so good to be here. And we are in week seven of our At the Core series, the final week. And so that means next week, we're going to start our series that will lead us into Easter. That series is called Gone. And in the midst of that series, we're going to be taking a look at the places Jesus went. If you've ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you realize Jesus doesn't stay in one place very often. So what can we learn as we take a look at all the places Jesus went throughout his life and ministry? So we hope you'll join us for that as it leads up to Easter. But this series at the core has been so energizing for me because I've heard so many great conversations that are happening inside of life groups or families or even in the lobby after services, people are talking about what's it actually mean to live out these values and to live out this mission that we've created. And so I want to point your attention back to our vision culture pyramid, kind of defines everything we do. Now you have heard us talk about this for the last six weeks. We've walked through what this pyramid means and how to explain it. And so instead of explaining it one more time, I want to know if there's a volunteer from the audience who would like to come up and walk us through this right here on stage. I'll help you along. Jake? Jake, you want to do it? All right, come on up, Jake. One brave guy in the whole crowd, and the rest of you are like, I don't ever want to be that guy. I don't know. All right. All right. Introduce, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Jake. Thank you. Jake from State Farm. <laughs> You uh, wore the wrong color shirt then. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so, okay, all right, so put that mic nice and close. Purpose. Our purpose is to love God and love others, which is the great commandment. And our beliefs, they are uh, hills that we die on, but not hammers that we hit people with. Okay. That's an important part, not the hammer part. <laughs> our values, they are the guardrails that form the beliefs, around the beliefs. If I'm yeah. saying that right? Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. Keep us in line, moving forward. And the mission is to connect everyone with Jesus, community, and purpose. All so. right. That was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, Jake, do you, know, do you remember any of the – so, pop quiz, do you know? We've <laughs> talked about five of the six values so far. Do you remember any of those? Uh, okay. So, the values, um, unimaginable faith. Unimaginable no. transformation. Transformation. Uh. Faith is one of them, though. Uh, ooh, yeah, I'm not real good on We'll those. put a cheat code back there for you. Oh, there we go. Oh, it should be. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Unimaginable transformation. Unimaginable transformation, unassuming authenticity, unhindered faith, unending development, and untamed excitement. All right, let's give it up for Jake. Nice job. Thank you, Appreciate sir. It. Appreciate it. So we hope that as you are comfortable, as you kind of hang out, these become things that we didn't just talk about in one seven-week series and we never talk about again. We hope they become a fabric that each and every one of you, each and every one of us could come up here and say, okay, here's our six values. Here's how we live those out. Here's how I as an individual live it out. Here's how we as a church live it out. And so we get to our final value this morning, and that value is this, uncommon generosity because God can do a lot with a little. 
Uncommon generosity because God can do a lot with a little. And as we unpack that value this morning, I want you to, if you've got your Bibles or your phones, go ahead and pull them out. We're going to open up to the book of Luke. And in there, we're going to look at a story you probably know, a story we could probably look at every week for the next six months and find something different to emphasize because it is so well known, but it's got so many like twists and turns throughout this story that are so important. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. So we'll be in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And as you read the book of Luke, whether it's this passage or others coming up, like understand this is a book written by a doctor so that his friend Theophilus could could stand on solid ground in his faith. He wants Theophilus to be able to know and be secure in what he believes. And so it's a very detailed account that walks through the life and ministry of Jesus. And so as we dive into this story of the Good Samaritan, I want to read the opening kind of introduction to that story in 1025. And it says this. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Let's pause there for just a minute because I think it's interesting. And I would offer this. I think the lawyer or the teacher of the law in this situation is asking the wrong question but I think he's asking the wrong question that we ask all the time. What he's really asking is, Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Right? He's not actually concerned about how he lives here in this world. He wants to know, how do I get to heaven? Maybe if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard it talked about fire insurance, right? Like, I know that there's a choice at the end of life. It's hell or it's heaven. I don't want to go there, so how do I get to heaven? I'll do that. I'll make that commitment. And then I'm going to live however else I want for the rest of my life because I did the thing I had to do to get into heaven. We got our golden ticket, and we can get in. I might rephrase his question. Jesus, how do I best follow you every day of my life? As opposed to just how do I get eternal life? How do I get life here and now? How do I follow you every day in everything I do? And Jesus is brilliant, right? We've we've watched Jesus do this all the way through the Gospels. He doesn't give the guy the answer. He knows the answer. This is what you need to do. He lets the lawyer answer the question himself. And the lawyer goes on and he says, essentially, I got to love God. I got to love people. I do that. This is what I do. And then I, and that's how I get, he- get into heaven. Jesus has been so generous with this man the whole way through. He gives him space. He gives him space to answer, to show off his knowledge. He gives him time. And the lawyer's answer is actually a combination of what he would have learned. It's a combination of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that the Israelites would have memorized. Moses actually tells them, put it on your forehead, teach it to your kids. That's what you need to do. And then he combines that with a passage out of the the book of Leviticus. But the Hebrew word Shema actually means to listen. And as we go on through this story, we're going to see that though he knew the right words, he'd never actually 
listened to those words. And I think that matters a lot. So Jesus essentially, after the lawyer gives the right answer, essentially pats him on the back, says, hey, good job. Now go do it. Go do what you know. I think James's brother, or J- Jesus' brother James was paying attention to Jesus' teaching with this man because as he wrote his letter later in the New Testament, James 1.22, it says this, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. So we can see Jesus already getting him away from this, like, what do you know? What do you believe? Or what's the right answer? Into, like, how are you living? He's taking him away from how do I get into heaven to how do I live every day? I hear people say things like this all the time. I just want to go deep. I really want some deep teaching. I want deep conversations. I want a deep Bible study so I can have deep faith. I might humbly propose that most of us in this room don't need another Bible study. What most of us in this room need is to go do what we already know. I think sometimes when we just start taking in Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, we create what I like to call couch potato Christians. We just get spiritually fat. We've got it all up here. We know all the answers. But how well are we living it out You see, when you take James' words and the parable Jesus is going to give in a minute, it's not about what's up here. It's about what's in here that motivates our actions. Jesus essentially pats this guy on the back, says, hey, good job. You know the right answer. Let me put a gold star on your chart in Kidstown. But your knowledge without action is useless. So what are you going to do? But the lawyer's looking for a way to justify his actions. And maybe the easiest thing he can do is limit his scope. So he says, I need to love my neighbor, but he doesn't really want to love his neighbor. So he's trying to figure out, how do I limit the scope of who my neighbor is? So that's what he asked Jesus. Well, who's my neighbor? This guy studied the law. He knows that God made provisions all the way along, not just for the Israelite, but for the outsider too. For those who weren't part of the Israelite community, God, even in the Old Testament, set up ways for the Israelites to care for those who were outside of his people. And his command to his people was, I'm going to bless you so you can go bless others. So this shouldn't really be new. I mean, look at just the book of Deuteronomy. God gives these commands to the Israelites about how to care for those who aren't Israelites. Deuteronomy 10, 19. They're to love the foreigner living among them. Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 29, they're to use their offerings to bless the stranger. Deuteronomy 
16.11, they're to celebrate their festivals and their feasts with those who are not part of the Jewish community, to welcome them in. Deuteronomy 24.14, they're never to take advantage of the poor or the outsider. Deuteronomy 24.19, care for the physical needs. He tells them when you harvest the field, actually leave stuff there. Intentionally leave food behind for the poor to come by and gather so that they can have food. Deuteronomy 31.12, study God's word with the outsider or the foreigner. You see, this lawyer would have known everyone is your neighbor. But he's trying to see if Jesus will shrink it down and make it a little bit easier. Maybe God's clearest instruction to him was Leviticus 19.34. Treat them like native-born Israelites. Love them as you love them yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Who's your neighbor? The answer to this, the, this lawyer's question is, anyone you see in need. But Jesus is a better teacher. Jesus doesn't just come right out and tell him that answer. He doesn't recite the law for him like we just did. He doesn't go through all those things. He says, hey, let me tell you a story. And then you tell me who your neighbor is. And actually, he even reframes the question. But we'll take a look at that in a minute. Deuteron or Luke 10 29, pick up the story there. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he could take care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now, there's a lot going on in this story. A lot happening, and I want to make sure we understand and don't miss some of it, because some of it's just background stuff, right? So Jesus tells the story about this man traveling from Jerusalem up to Jericho. It's a 17-mile stretch of road. Lots of curves, lots of hidden places, caves, cliffs to hide in. It was a place in that day and age that robbers loved to just kind of camp out because they knew if they caught somebody traveling by themselves, they'd be able to take advantage of them, rob them, kill them, do whatever they wanted to do. It was the place you don't go alone, right? We all have that, like, you don't go here alone place, right? That's where the setting of this story takes place. But the next thing, and we can, we can just kind of wash over this, is who the traveler is. The traveler is a Jewish man. He's just like the lawyer. He's traveling on business. He's alone. But he's a man that if the lawyer saw in trouble, he would for sure stop and help. 
There's no way this teacher of the law is going to leave another Jewish person alone dying on the side of the road. And then the first two passerbys. The priest and the Levite. The two who you would think would be the ones who would stop. To the lawyer, this is a no-brainer. They are going to help this guy. There's no way they're going to pass by. They both had a choice to make. Are they going to serve the church or are they going to serve someone in need? And what I mean by that is for them to stop, if this man was dead, they would be ceremonially unclean. They'd be no longer able to go in to to lead worship, to do any of those things until they went through the cleansing process of that day. That would be an inconvenience. But is that inconvenience worth more than this man's life? But they pass by on the other side. Even though the law does make room for, and the lawyer would have known this, that if they had stopped and there was no family around, they would not actually have to go through the cleansing process. They would still be ceremonially unclean. Jesus gives us no reason why they don't stop, just that they looked and kept walking. They can't say we didn't see him. They did see him. Maybe they were late to a meeting. Maybe they were afraid for their own life. Regardless of whatever the outside reason they would give, the truth is it was too inconvenient for them to stop. And finally, the third passerby. Jesus describes him as the despised Samaritan. Please don't miss what Jesus is about to do in this point of the story. He is calling out this lawyer's racist tendencies to make a powerful, powerful point. The lawyer sees, hears a Samaritan's coming, a half-breed. For us Harry Potter fans, a real-life mudblood is coming by. To To the lawyer, this guy's a traitor at best. He's a heretic or a false teacher at worst. He worships not at the temple where you're supposed to worship, but at another temple set up in Jericho where the Samaritans worshiped because they're no longer clean because they'd broken God's law and they couldn't worship. This Samaritan is about to stop and save someone's life who if they'd met on any other day, the guy laying in the ditch would rather spit on him than shake his hand. And he's about to show him uncommon generosity. Because he's the only one who risks his life to stop and help this guy. He's the only one who, right there on the side of the road, doctors his wounds, gets him up on his donkey, takes him to the inn. And I'll tell you, I've read this story a hundred times. I don't think I ever thought about the fact He loses a day in his trip. He stayed all night in that inn doctoring that guy's wounds because the Bible says the next day. How many of you have been on business trips? And you call, you're like, you call your spouse back home. Hey, honey, I know the kids are driving you up a wall, but I just passed this guy and I'm going to stay another day here and take care of his wounds. 
I'm going to stay another day and make sure he's okay. Oh, and I'm going to pay that out of our pocket. And I'm going to pay his room cost out of our pocket. And anything else that happens to him, we're going to pay for that too. Is that okay, sweetheart? That's what this guy's doing. His trip's delayed. He's spending his own money. He's risking his own life in service. He's the only one who gives this guy any hospitality. Jesus closes this story by turning it back to the Pharisee, back to the lawyer with a, his own question. You see, the lawyer wanted to know who his neighbor was, so he knew who he had to be kind to and who he doesn't have to be nice to. Jesus restates the question and focuses on a heart that acts as a neighbor to anyone, anywhere, anytime, who has a need. And the most amazing part of this story is the lawyer is so entrenched in his hatred of these people that when Jesus asks, he can't even say the Samaritan. This whole story is simply unbelievable to him. A good Samaritan is an oxymoron to him. There's no such thing. And so he simply says, the one who showed mercy. Jesus again says, hey, good job. You know the right thing. Now go do it. Let me put this in a modern context. There's a story of a pastor who was at a convenience store. And the family in front of him, they just had a couple of items, but they were realizing and he could hear them very clearly say that they couldn't pay for these groceries. It was just a few snacks and some milk. He taps the gentleman on the shoulder from behind. He says, don't turn around. And he hands some money over his shoulder. You don't have to look at me. You don't need to know who I am. But here's money for your groceries. The guy reaches back, he takes it, pays for his groceries, and walks out. He never saw who the gentleman was. Nine years later, this pastor is invited to speak in a church in New Orleans. After the service, the man walked up to him and shared this story. My wife and our child were destitute. We'd lost everything. We had no jobs, no money. We were living out of our car. We'd lost all hope. So my wife and I agreed on a suicide pact for the two of us and our infant son. But our kid was hungry. And so before we went to the spot, we stopped at a convenience store to buy some food and some milk. While we were standing in line, we realized we didn't have enough money to pay for it. But a man behind us asked us to please take money from his hand. And all he said when I took the money was, Jesus loves you. We left the store. We drove to our suicide site and we wept. We couldn't go through with it, so we drove away. As we drove home, we noticed a church with a sign out front which said, Jesus loves you. We went to that church the very next Sunday. And it was that day that my wife and I both began a relationship with Jesus. He told the pastor, when you were speaking this morning, I knew exactly who it was you. It was your accent that gave you away. 
But he said this, your act of kindness was much more than a simple good deed. Three people are alive today because of it. Church, when we think about our random acts of kindness, we don't realize the impact they're having in people's lives. And when we think about this value of uncommon generosity, because God can do a lot with a little, we realize how important the little things are that we do every day. And so as we think back on this story that Jesus tells, what do we learn from it? What are the lessons that help us see what this pastor saw in that convenience store that day? I think first, generosity is rooted in gratitude. Our generosity takes root in gratitude. The conversation begins when the lawyer asks Jesus what he must do to get into heaven. If you are a follower of Jesus... You have heaven waiting for you. How do we say thanks back? Our faith's all that's required to get in. But when we realize what it costs Jesus for us to get into heaven, our natural inclination should be to love him back. And how do you love someone who has everything they need? How do you show love to a God who created you? What gift do you buy for the one who is the reason we celebrate Christmas? God has no birthday. He has no need. He's completely self-sufficient. So how do we show him love? The answer is pretty simple and the Bible is pretty clear. We love those he created. John says in 1 John 4, 7, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. We take John's teaching about loving people because we've been loved, and we put that next to the story of the Good Samaritan, and we realize that this is a call to love everyone regardless of race or gender, socioeconomic class, sexuality, you put your descriptor on there, we're supposed to love them. And we do that out of gratitude because Jesus loved us. And we should be so generous with that love. Second, the thing we realize in the story of the Good Samaritan is generosity is more than money. 
Now, I know some of you heard me say this value, uncommon generosity, and you're like, we picked the wrong Sunday to come because this guy's going to stand up here and just be like, give me your money. Not true. Generosity for the Good Samaritan was way more than money. It started way before he spent a dime of his money. And maybe for some of us, depending on your life stage, it's easier to give money than it is to give our most valuable commodity, which is time. But generosity spans all of that. For the Good Samaritan, it was about the money he spent to pay for this guy's inn. It was about the hospitality he gave as he welcomed him in. It was about the act of service to stop on that road and take care of him. It was about the time that it took. It covered all of it. Now, please don't think, oh, I can just pick one. I'll just pick one. Oh, Jason just said, I don't have to be generous with my money. I'll be stingy with that, but I'll give away my time. I mean, it's going to vary, right? It varies as we walk through. But I think we have to be uncommonly generous in all of it. George Barna, I love research, and George Barna and the Barna Group have been doing some research on generosity across generations. And I want to put this slide up for you to take a look at. So you can kind of see, we've got Gen Z in the kind of dark blue on your far left, and the elders in the red on your far right. And you can look at all the different ways that those who profess faith are generous. And what I want you to see in this, two things I think that are really important as we look at this. The obvious ones are Gen Z is generous with time. And the truth is Gen Z is generous with time because they're really generous with Gen X money. Because my kids are really generous with my money. They give it away all the time, right? But they don't have much, right? The elders, they're generous with their money because acts of service are a lot harder and maybe not able to be done. So please don't look at this and be like, oh, I knew that generation didn't do this. This is not so we judge each other. What I think it actually shows is that every every generation shows generosity in every one of these ways. There is no zero on that graph anywhere. So how are we doing that? The other thing it shows, we need each other. Some of us have more funds to be generous with financially. Some of us have more time to be generous with financially. What if we combine those two things? What impact would we make in our community instead of worrying about what everybody else is doing? I mean, think back to our story about the pastor. He made a small donation, took no time, small donation. Somebody at the church invested their time and put up a sign out front that said, Jesus loves you. There was a greeter who gave their time on Sunday morning to make sure that family felt welcome when they came in. There were some volunteers who loved kids who made their baby feel safe and comfortable and make sure that he knew Jesus loved them. There was a worship and an environment that helped prepare their hearts to hear the truth of the gospel. God spoke through the pastor to draw them into a relationship. We could look at this and be like, oh, that's super mundane. We do that every Sunday. But we couldn't do it 
if people weren't being generous? Money to build the sign, time to put the sign up, money to pay the staff, money to help keep the church going, time to greet, time to brew coffee, even if it's bad, time to brew coffee. Right? We've got all these things we've got to work on. Church, our time and our talent and our money are not our own. We're simply managers. We're managers of God's money, not owners. Theologian Mark Moore says in his commentary in this story that there are three ways of looking at life in this story. The thieves say what's yours is mine. The religious leaders value or show, demonstrate a value of what's mine is mine. And the Samaritan says, what's mine is yours. How are we going to live that out? Not just here. It's one thing to do it on Sunday morning. We've got a great opportunity for you to do that on Sunday morning if you're looking for ways. Three services on Easter. That's a holiday. I know you have family plans. Uncommon generosity says I'm still going to show up and give of time to make sure everybody feels welcome, to make sure our kids are taken care of at an eight o'clock service. God bless you if you volunteer for that one, but we need your help. But it's not just here. And actually, maybe even more than just here, it's got to be in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, in our communities, so that people look at Great Oaks, or if you would ask your neighbor and say, is Great Oaks a generous place? Could they say yes? If you ask your neighbor, are the people of Great Oaks individually generous? What would they say? And what would the impact be in their lives? Not on us. It's not about us getting pats on the back. What would the impact in their life be if we actually did what we said? Uncommon generosity. Because God can do a lot with the little that we give. I would say much like the lawyer never expected a good Samaritan. Most people in our culture don't expect generous love from the church. They don't expect generosity. We're not the place people come anymore. But our Savior does. Jesus does. So my prayer is that we follow Jesus together here at Great Oaks. We would learn to show up in unexpected places with unexpected gifts of time, resources, and our talents in the middle of people's lives so that they would know how much Jesus loves them. And maybe, just maybe if we do this, we'll change the way people view church. Not by winning arguments, not by judging what they believe, but by being generous because we have a God who's been generous to us. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, it is an incredibly humbling privilege to serve you. 
to realize that we're loved by you no matter how many mistakes we make or how often we make the same mistake over and over again. We are loved by you. God, may we never forget that. And God, may that love that we've received drive us out to love those around us and to do it in ways they never expected, to do it in ways that aren't common, to do it in ways that set us apart, not for our glory, but so people would come to know there's a God who loves them too. God, make us that kind of church. Work in our lives in those ways. Help us not just know it in our head, but to live it every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.